Hey everybody, welcome back to Jointly Venturing, Let's Talk World Citizenship. This is episode 31, and uh, we're recording today on the 18th of August, 2020. Um, yesterday, sorry, we're recording on the 19th here, the 18th in Canada, where our guest is today. Um, the 18th of August, of course, is the 7th anniversary yesterday our time of the adoption of the peninsula principles on climate displacement within states so seven years going strong still being used extensively around the world as a as a tool as a normative framework for solving um, and preventing uh, climate displacement uh, wherever it occurs and we'll have more to say on the peninsula principles in upcoming episodes now we find ourselves obviously in the middle of, of the only pandemic really that all of us have ever lived through, the COVID-19 crisis, which is affecting literally every country on planet Earth. And if we ever needed a reminder that all of us are in it together, that all of us are interconnected with everyone else, and that we all live on one single solitary globe, uh, COVID-19 proves that beyond any doubt. And it, it needs to remind us of the fact that uh, if we all work together, we will be past this more quickly. We will have less human suffering than would have otherwise been the case. And it provides an impetus for all of us to reflect on our role as um, not just citizens of the place where we live, but citizens of the earth itself. So it reminds us of that old adage, of thinking globally and acting locally. And that's going to be the theme for our episode today. Um, what does it actually mean to think globally and act locally? Some of us, like me, um, I most certainly think globally, but I also act gl globally <laughs> quite a lot in terms of the work I do around the world. But I also act locally. And today we are very happy to have with us... Um, Canadian and Nova Scotian, uh, Gregory Henning, who's speaking to us today from uh, Annapolis County in Nova Scotia, Canada. Um, and we're going to talk today about his own personal experiences of thinking globally and acting locally. So, Gregory, welcome to Jointly Venturing. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Well, first of all, tell us about... Um, Tell us about, just to get people uh, interested, tell us about the time you tried to run across Australia. That'll be of interest to Australian listeners. Uh, uh, you know, it was just done on a lark in a sense, not to try and, um, that was many years ago. I spent a lot, a lot of time as a long-distance runner. And it wasn't really about anything to do with endurance as much as just I felt a need at that time to, spend some time just touching the earth and looking at my own ability to move myself. Um, so I, I started near Port Augusta and ran just a, a south of, um, of uh, Alice Springs. Uh, a marvelous experience. Uh, would I do it again? Probably not. <laughs> uh, and, and like I said, I, I did it just not to set records, not to do endurance, but just to touch the earth for a period of time, and uh, and I liked it. I, I liked running in the heat, and uh, as Scott knows, after that I, I, I relocated up to the to northern Canada, up to to, uh, um, uh, to the Yukon, 
and I ended up there running in the Yukon, the first Yukon Arctic Ultra, which is the coldest human-powered uh, human race in the world. And um, I can tell you I won't do that one again. So how far did you get in Australia when you ran, when you ran, uh, you, you were running what, south to north? I, I was running south to north and I got to just south, I believe it's about 700 kilometers. So that puts me a little south of Alice Springs. And it wasn't your body that gave out. It was your support vehicle, right? Yeah, that, that's right. We just, uh, I, I was probably more prepared than the vehicle. Uh, it, was, it was just became cumbersome to do that. Uh, uh, cause I would run about 20 miles miles um, a, a day and then had a, a support crew that would uh, pitch a tent and, um, and put me in, prepare a little food, and, and I'd get a good night's sleep. And uh, it was less exhausting than I thought because I could spend all day doing that. Didn't have right. To a record. Uh, but, yeah, it was about 700 kilometers. Not bad. Not bad. And what about the race in Yukon? What happened there? Well, it, you know, <laughs> it, it really it was the first ever uh, Yukon Arctic Ultra. And the idea was in February, which is a cold, dark time of the year, to, to stage a race that you could either run it, uh, you could bicycle it, or you could cross-country ski it. Wow. And uh, I decided to, uh, to, to bicycle it. So I built what I thought would be a good bike for that because uh, we're running on kind of powdered snow. So built a bicycle with big balloon tires and carry your support gear with you. And there's checkpoints that you put into. Um, but it was the wrong, it was the wrong mode of transportation because I would have to cross overflow and that would be kind of thawing. And then the chain would freeze up or have to pull out my little stale backpack and stove and thaw out my, uh, uh, my, my chain. But I discovered early on, I was 55 at the time, the, uh, the oldest competitor. Wow. And I, what I did not realize is I was, the people who were competing in it were 22, 25-year-old paramilitary survival experts that had been doing uh, extreme races all over the world. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and they, they, the, the people who succeeded or ran it, they, they carried a pulp behind it, it's a six-foot pulp, kind of like a sled that would open up. And their sleeping bag was right in there. Their food was right in there. They'd have a little soup, a little food, and take a nap. I had to put up a tent. Um, I, I was ill-prepared, but I, but I loved it because I love big wilderness. So it was okay. How many days were you on the trail? Uh, two and a half. And how you didn't make it, I'm presuming. I, I, I made it to 100 kilometers. You could do a 100-kilometer or a 300-kilometer. Wow. The, okay. Uh, so you made it a hundred. I did. And, uh, the, uh, the, the, the crew that there, there was always a sweet crew behind you that, that would make sure everything was okay. And they kept asking me, uh, Mr. Henry, you want to, going to continue? And I said, yeah, I'm going to continue. And they just kind of, kind of roll their eyes and stay with me. So, uh, so I was slow, but. Wow. A definite, definite glutton for punishment. And so tell us about the other aspects of living in indigenous communities in Canada, in the Yukon for those 11 years. What, what were some of the, the lessons you learned up there? Well, it, it, it's quite interesting. You know, just a little bit of context 
the reason I ended up in the uh, in the Yukon is I uh, decided to go back to the university and finish my PhD. It was a, a terminal degree that had always uh, eluded me. Mm-hmm. And um, so what I what I was able to do is I wanted to experience big wilderness. And uh, so I, I went to the Yukon and lived in a small cabin, just about 16 feet by 20 feet uh, wow. for a couple of years, no interior heat, and um, didn't have electricity for a while. And I would I would write during the day, take breaks, and then I'd either cross-country ski or walk um, into the wilderness. And as part of my doctoral program, which was at the Union Institute out of Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, one of the first University Without Walls programs, mm-hmm. your, your work had to do two things. One, you had to combine more than one discipline, which was new for a program at that time, because usually if you're doing a PhD and say you're doing it in anthropology, you select three professors from the anthropology department to sit in judgment of your work. And you talked about anthropology. This program says combine more than one discipline. So I, my passion for life was big wilderness and through that ecology and mm-hmm. literature. Right. So I combine that in ecological uh, um, uh, literacy. Uh, but the other part is that you had to, your work had to have practical importance to the world or to the place. So as part of that, I started the Society for uh, Education and Culture, which was an educational-based program to see if there's a way to facilitate some really nasty disputes that were happening over land between Parks Canada, Champagne Asiatic First Nations, a group of people that call themselves the Reds, Responsible Economic Development, which was some of the the, the loggers. Mm-hmm. And... We waded into that, and it was ugly, and it was vicious. And I bet. Uh, for example, one of the people from the from the uh, from the Monta- or from the uh, Yukon government came to give a presentation, and someone got up and ripped the map that she was using up off the wall and not, threw it away. Uh, so we were going nowhere, and so I thought, how can I get people to sit around? and have any sort of dialogue or any sort of communion uh, under these circumstances. So it dawned on me, music, song, story, and dance. So that's what I did. Started a Society for Education and Culture, and we did music events, writing events. uh, And I, I knew after a year that I was making some progress because the the leader of the Green Party and the leader of the the Reds the, economic, the responsible economic development loggers, they were dancing together on the floor to Viasan, the group from Benali's Cuba. And they were right. having a great time. Right. That was enough to break it. I got people to sit around the table to have a drink or two, tell a story, and sing or dance. That did it. When they got through that barrier, then they could start to experience deep listening and start telling stories. So that worked. Right. What a what an important lesson for the world, really. You know. Well, it, it worked. We did three hundred music events. I would bring nature writers together with scientists in Parks Canada, and uh, and painters, plein air 
the landscape painters, put them out in the field, and not only talk about grizzly bear habitat, but to paint it, to talk about it, right. and to tell stories about it. Um, it, it. It was a way, I think, for world citizenship in some sense, that we have to be able to write a new narrative, be able to restore a more ancient narrative before we can talk about public policy and, and government. And, uh, I, I still firm, uh, firmly believe that, that that has to happen. Yeah, and there's really, I mean, it, it, it raises so many different issues, but one lesson, of course, is that, you know, the more exposure all of us have to people that are presented to us externally as the other or as different or as, you know, a, a different belief structures, different religious systems, different cultural beliefs. Once we actually see them and speak to them and hang out with them, we see that those differences are extremely minor compared to the similarities that all of us share, much to our amazement in many cases when people haven't had that degree of exposure. So, you know, yeah. it's face-to-face -face contact really does help and and make a difference and and allows us to transcend all of the, uh, you know, verbiage that is thrown at us by those who want there to be uh, differentiation rather than unification of all of us humans. And uh, I think it's a really important lesson. Now, speaking of th that area, did you, uh, do you have any good brief um, grizzly stories? Most, er most everyone <laughs> has grizzly stories from up there. <laughs> I, I've got that, that those, a couple of those grizzly stories became turning points in my life in, in a sense. I, 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 uh, I lost my old dog. I got a new dog that was part Toltan bear dog that were imported into Canada to work with park wardens. Uh, and these dogs, their instinct is to, if you see a bear in bear country, they will run off and the bear will chase them as opposed to a lot of dogs will bring the bear back into camp or bring it back to the, to, to the owner. And, oh. and I'm alive today because of this little dog was able to do what, what she did. And, uh, 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 one day right in my driveway and I was in the Alsac Valley. So it wasn't odd to see uh, grizzly bears and moose drift through the driveway and eat in my garden. Uh, but I went out there one day and there was a, about a 300 pound rogue grizzly in the driveway. My dog took off and started to chase her and then turned around and I was able to get in the car and shut the door. And I remember, I'll never forget it. I, I shut the door to, to a, um, a little a Volkswagen. I, I shut the door and it wouldn't shut. All I heard is it was hitting this huge paw that was in the door. Oh, you're kidding. Bear, oh, my God. Uh, the bear, bear pulled back the paw, and I was able to shut the door. And then it got to the side of the car, leaned up against it, and was really rocking the car. Wow. Finally drifted off. I called Parks Canada. They, they sent some, some wardens out to, to trap it in a steel uh, uh, barrel trap. And uh, when they were kind of getting that set up, the, the ward, one of the wards looked at him and he says, Gregory, are you okay? I said, yeah, I, th I think I, I think I'm okay. He said he looked down at my trousers, my pants, and they were torn almost all the way down the leg. 
I was able to get a claw on my pants, rip my pants, but did not touch my skin. And that was the first you saw of the the tattered jeans. That, that's right. I, I hadn't noticed it. I was just too busy. Well, but the, they set up the bear trap to, to trap it, but the bear came out um, and went right at the warden. Was no interest in the trap. Went right at the warden, so they had to destroy the bear. Wow! Um, so that was a pretty aggressive bear. And what? And what happened to your little doggy? Uh, dog was fine. It comes back in about twenty, thirty minutes, and she d- did that on a couple occasions. And uh, I, I lost her a couple of years ago. She was sixteen, and a, a real, a real companion. Talk about getting into the natural world! It was, uh, wow! Dogs can get you there. That's yeah. amazing. That's amazing. So you spent eleven years in the in the Yukon, and um, and after that, you then moved to Nova Scotia, or you went somewhere else in between, or what? What'd you do? I, I went. Yeah, after after eleven years, I felt that my work was done, and uh, and I was I was hungry for 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 people for a different sort of cultural experience. In, in the Yukon, I mean, there's there's more moose than people. Right. <laughs> 26,000 people, and those people all live within a quarter mile of the Alaska Highway, and the rest of it is just big wilderness. Mm. Uh, and after 11 years, I was I was hungry, so I, I wanted to, to come back and reflect a little. So I, I moved to Nelson, British Columbia, mm-hmm. uh, and, which is a wonderful little art town and community. And, uh, uh, and in terms of my taking some time and doing some reflection, I, I did some, some theater pieces and continue reconnected with my spiritual practice and the practice of Buddhist and reconnected with that, uh, which was necessary. And, and, and Scott, just as a little deviation for a moment in terms of, 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 of reconnecting and, and withdrawal and the Yukon. Mm-hmm. I might have told you this, but maybe I didn't. But about, I'm a municipal councilor in Annapolis County, and mm-hmm. about twenty thousand constituents, and it's been really demanding work. More demanding since we had COVID, uh, the pandemic hit us. Sure, it changed the way we had to do things. But but just before that, I thought you know, I, I've kind of lost my spiritual base. I've lost my bearings a little, and I need to think about that. And I came across just about that time. That was about November, December of last year. Mm-hmm. I came across uh, something that was written by a man named Paul Kingsnorth. And uh, Paul started the uh, the Dark Mountain Journal. And he wrote an article in Orion Magazine, one of the leading, I think, uh, literary scientific publications. And... Uh, I want to read you just a couple lines from that 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 were that were a game changer for me. Yeah, sure. But Paul asked himself, yeah, Paul asked himself this basic question. He said, uh, "What at this moment in history would not be a waste of my time?" And I asked myself that question: What at this moment in history would not be a waste of my time? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, Scott, I didn't have an answer. Right. I literally didn't have an answer for that because you and I talked about displacement solutions. I'm involved in other sorts of, of local economic development initiatives. Climate change is my passion. And it was just all a jumble at that point. 
and Paul Kignor said uh, what he did is he started to do some deep reflection. And it's this first point that he made that I thought was so significant, not only to me, but I think it may be something that a lot of the, your listeners might think about. And the first thing he came up with is he had to withdraw. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this, is what, this is what he wrote about this on withdrawing. And this is a direct quote. He said, if, if you do this, a lot of people will call you a defeatist or a doomer or claim that you are burnt out. They will tell you that you have an obligation to work for climate justice or world peace or the end of bad things everywhere and that fighting is always better than quitting. Ignore them and take part. And this is, this is what really captured me about this and take part in a very ancient practical and spiritual tradition withdrawing from the fray Mm -hmm. withdraw not with cynicism but with a questing mind withdraw so that you can allow yourself to sit back quietly and feel into it work out what is right for you and this next piece scott is really important work out what is right for you and what nature might need from you. Right. Withdrawal because refusing to help the machine advance, refusing to tighten the ratchet further, is a deeply moral position. Withdrawal because action is not always more effective than inaction. Withdrawal to examine your worldview, the cosmology, the paradigm, the assumptions, the direction of travel, all real change starts with withdrawal. So, Scott, when I read that, I right. thought, this is that message that I, that I need to listen to. So, uh, just after that, COVID hit, and we had to kind of sequester ourselves, withdrawal because of the virus. And right. I was already in that mindset. So, so this pandemic, even though it's been the ugliest thing I've been through, the saddest thing I've been through, it has worked well for me because I needed an excuse to withdraw and reflect. And this gave it to me. Right. So and that's the mindset that I come to this podcast tonight. And it's the mindset that I'm dealing with um, on a daily basis. And I'm finding it tremendously exciting frightening but necessary right and and of course withdrawal you know to people that hear that word for the first time and and immediately associate it with um you know defeat or Mm -hmm. or lack of interest in the rest of the world um you know nothing could really be further from the truth and it's i think you know withdrawal is one of those um timeless you know immemorial impossible to solve paradoxes ultimately that one comes up against the deeper one engages with um, philosophical wisdom and you know how can it be that the the further one evolves into a a person who sees everything as unified and and one um, how can that person then not fully engage with all of the attributes and all the entities within that greater whole 
And why does one feel the need to actually, much like monks have traditionally done, um, withdraw from society and isolate themselves away, even as their awareness of the value and inherent beauty of all things that exist grows? So reconciling mm-hmm. that paradox is, is a really, I think it's easy for those who are experiencing it to, rec- to reconcile it, more difficult for those viewing it from the outside to reconcile that. So what would you say to those people that, you know, how can you possibly care about the world if all you're doing is shutting your, your compound gate and, uh, and going inward? Yeah. And, and that, that's, a, that, that's really, according to what I'm experiencing now, and I think that's Paul King's North idea that, that, um, that withdrawing is not locking the door or locking the gate. Matter of fact, withdrawal is, you know, like what he says, to sit back quietly, feel into it. And that's what I'm doing. And and what I've discovered is it made me want to connect with people like you and others who are doing good things for humanity. And I wanted to find out not what they're doing as much as I didn't, I like the particulars are important that you're moving for example, displacement solutions, there's legal issues, social issues that have to be done. They're important to know. But what I found myself wanting to know more is what makes people tick? What makes people do that? To spend a lifetime doing it. Mm-hmm. It dawned on me, I'm 73. I've been doing this for 52 years in one way or another. Right, right. And... Um, and, um, and I thought, what would it feel like to wake up one day and acknowledge to myself, Gregory, you don't have to save the world today. And uh, even the sheer fact of saying those words has, has slowed me down. For example, I, I live on a, an old 17-acre farm along the Annapolis River, beautiful piece of ground. Right. That is right next to one of the old. Uh, Champlain st- stepped on to my farm when he came here in the 1600s, and uh, it's a, a wild place. And there was a, a an Acadian village built next to mine. It was vacated in about 1750. And I, I've slowed myself down enough that this is no exaggeration. On a calm night. I can still hear children laughing that lived in that settlement a couple of 300 years ago. Wow. And it dawned on me that stories never leave the land. Right. Uh, and, and land has always been occupied by someone, someplace, and we've all been nomadic. We've always been drifting one place or another over the last 1.2 million years. Uh, but you can still hear that. And that, uh, that's what I want to try and experience as opposed to this more active-oriented uh, solution, I suppose. Right. Does that make any sense? That makes total sense to me, yeah. I mean, the the whole lockdown for so many people, you know, whether we, you know, chose to do it or not, um, you know, because we are currently in under severe lockdown here in the state of Victoria and uh, mm-hmm. the Melbourne area. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we mm-hmm. have a curfew even, you know, it's like a war zone. 
we have a curfew at night mm-hmm. from eight o'clock until five in the morning. No one is allowed out. And, you know, there's other restrictions associated with um, daytime activities, which are, you know, very, very, very strict. Um, mm-hmm. But still, and, you know, that's good. I mean, I'm glad, you know, we were very, very, very lucky, Australia, uh, with regard to COVID, you know, very small numbers until now. Um, and even now, the numbers are very small in global terms. Um, but, you know, seven, mm-hmm. eight, seven eighths of Australia are essentially COVID free. <laughs> you know, the vast majority of the country is operating mm-hmm. as usual. No masks, no nothing, um, except for Victoria. And one of the things that, you know, we notice on the, you know, one hour a day that we go outside with our dog and things like that is that, you know, it's very clear that people are not very comfortable in, in quotes, doing nothing, you know? People mm-hmm. are still completely obsessed with consuming, um, with socializing, with engaging in activities that they probably shouldn't be engaging in these days, you know, during the middle of COVID. And in that, that in, in and of itself, you know, raises a whole bunch of, of issues. Why is it so hard for modern individuals in a, in a highly evolved, developed society to find it so difficult to be isolated and to look inside and to, you know, explore other options. You know, just to cite one example, um, I would say, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm personally a very unmaterialistic person, but I'm even less materialistic now during the lockdown than, than ever before. And um, the amount of trash that's generated, the amount of rubbish that's generated is, is so much less than usual, you know, the amount of compost, mm-hmm. like every single piece of, of uh, you know, organic matter goes into the compost as always, um, but even more thoroughly, you know. And so there's a lot of interesting mm-hmm. things that, unf- you know, unfold when you are in this kind of, you know, isolated setting. And, and the challenge is, of course, to embrace it and enjoy it and use this time, which is enforced, um, to um, improve oneself, one's own environment, and to plan for, you know, the things you can do down the road once things improve. And we've seen, you know, one of the positive side effects of COVID, if you can say that, is are the environmental ones. You know, it's the first time that, that global carbon dioxide levels have gone down um, for many, many yeah. years. And, you know, rivers are clearing themselves up and, and streams are, are getting fish again that haven't had them for a long time. And dolphins are appearing in various uh, harbors where they haven't seen them for a long time and so on and so forth. So and obviously air travel has almost ground to an entire halt um, by comparison. And it takes that in order to realize what it's going to actually take to truly address um the lifestyle choices that everyone makes and the economic system in which we live um, in order to make sure that climate change doesn't play itself out in the most negative possible way. And, and it just shows yeah. you how much we are up against. If it takes a global pandemic to get, you know, a life and death situation for billions of people to change behavior, what happens when that pandemic threat no longer is there, you know? And my, my fear, of course, is that, you know, people, instead of learning the lesson, they will consume more and they will travel more and they will fly more and they will do more things and they will socialize more and they will drink more and they will do everything more because they've, they feel like they've been, um, you know, restricted from doing those things. 
um, for this yes. comparatively short period of time. So I'm still hopeful, but um, uh, I am also apprehensive. Yeah, this is, this is it's, it's a reminder to me that one part of being, I don't think you can, you can think about even being a, a global citizen until you figure out at some level what it means to be a human being. Right. And part, part of being a human being for me is that we always uh, live in the middle of a paradox. Yes. And one of, one of the paradox is, is we're, to be human is to be social. But humans are also quite solitary. Mm-hmm. And that monastic experience that you spoke of uh, is, is a deep, rich um, part of the human character. When I was, um, it's real interesting, I was just got out of high school in um, 1965. Bought this old 49 Ford for $75. <laughs> and I loaded all my, 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 uh, I didn't even have an oil filter. What you did for an oil filter is you pulled the cap off the oil thing and you put a roll of toilet paper in there. As wow. a filter. Works quite well. Works quite well. So I loaded this car up with all this equipment that my family had, which is a huge cast iron stove, heavy, or, and cast iron skillets. And I had, my family had a, uh, a tent, an umbrella tent. I, I swear it, it takes a land use permit to put this thing up. It's huge. <laughs> and uh, that's where I, I started. And I went to the Grand Teton about 10 hours away, beautiful national park, beautiful mountains. Scott, I don't know why I went there. I don't know how I heard about it, but I went there at 18 and uh, uh, joined, uh, signed up for the Exum Climbing School to climb the Grand Teton. Right. And I did that. And so to this day, I, I have always been a big view, big picture person. Because I got to the top of that mountain, and I, I swear I could see from one end of the earth to the other. And it was all of a sudden I had that big view. Right. And it really, it really hit me. And I, and I come back down, and I go to my campsite, and I'm still, I'm wrestling with my getting my tent back up and everything else. And I look over at the next picnic table and there's a guy sitting there. And I notice on his table, he has hardly anything on his table and he's sitting there writing. I just go over and talk to him. He ha- He's bicycling all the way across the United States. He has everything that he needs in his panniers and his bicycle. He's taking a few pictures to document the people that he's talking about. He's, he's writing on onion skin paper that's so light. Mm-hmm. And and uh, a little say a stove eating small and I thought there's something about the simplicity of that being humor powered on a bicycle carry nothing that you can't use right and that stuck with me as trying to understand simplicity and what it means to the human character um, and it it's those sort of events and experiences that have shaped me and always will I can't shake them. Yeah, well, it's one of those things, again, that, you know, all of us have to, uh, you know, fight against is this this relentless pursuit of non-simple lives by so many people, you know, and this point of, you know, we're not only talking about the billionaire class here, we're talking about 
upper middle class, even middle class, even working class people for whom um, there is no end in sight in terms of like material possessions or even financial well-being. You know, it has to always be more. It has to increase. It has to go up. It has to expand. The bigger is better mentality has spread from the United States outwards, you know, and is existent just about everywhere. And from an ecological yeah. perspective or climate change perspective, you know, that's a recipe for disaster, right? And, yeah. you know, the hope is that, you know, oftentimes you do need to go through certain levels of development or certain stages of psychological progress in order to reach the other side where you see that all of this stuff is completely meaningless, right? And that the, you know, true freedom comes not from the acquisition of, of material things, but it comes from the transcendence of them and and no longer at all having the compulsion or need within you to acquire more that to me yeah. personally anyway is 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 a much more measure a proper measurement of the term freedom you know than the ability yeah to have unfettered you know consumption possibilities that like quite literally never end you know and it's all that kind of mind changing that really needs to go on i think collectively as a species if we are to um you know as much as we can ensure the continued you know human civilization on this planet in a way that is you know truly beneficial to everyone because we're still so far away from that you know and what and my interest is just on that on that same topic my interest is to take what you're scott what you're just talking about and try and put that into government, local government policy. Right, right. How can you begin? How can you begin to shape a local economy? Twenty thousand people. How can you begin to reshape them where they buy less, where they travel less, where they grow more food? Mm-hmm. Uh, and how? And what sort of policy do you write about that? How? What a one of the, and I, and I'm probably an outcast as a, as a politician. I've, I've been there two terms. And, uh, uh, one, one of the things that I'm trying to figure out is, is how, um, for example, for me, local municipal government has to redistribute wealth. Mm-hmm. We've got to, we've got to tax people more that can afford it. And provide services to, the, to some that don't. Right. We have an economic development strategy of like 2050, and I, and I think I'm going to update that to 2030 because I think it's possible. But, but at least by 2050, that Annapolis County will produce 80% of its energy locally, will produce 80% of our food locally, will build safe, efficient, affordable housing for anyone that needs it. We will provide. We will institute something called place-based education based on mentorship and local skills within the community, and we'll do everything to protect clean air and water. All of those things reduce greenhouse gases and reduce consumption. Mm-hmm. But uh, how, how do you really institute that with, with people my age and with younger people? And what sort of policy do you write? We're governed here by a municipal government act. It doesn't address the idea of consuming less not in there it needs to be right right uh, and, and that uh, and 
and Scott, you and I have had discussions about if you're going to relocate uh, people from, from parts of the world that have to relocate because of climate disruption. Um, and where, where do you relocate them? My thought is if we relocate them in Annapolis County, are those, is that slowing down, being more compassionate, being more of a human being? Those are the, those are the pieces that are going to be necessary to, to, to accept people that no longer have a place to live. But how do you measure that? How do you insist upon it? Um, one of the things, we had a long council meeting today, and I found myself out of nowhere uh, telling people that there's a difference between being parochial and being local. Right, right. Good line. Mm-hmm. Council said, yeah, what, what, what council said, well, what, what's the difference? Well, for me, being local means being willing to share. Uh, and um, uh, local means understanding the whole notion of being cooperative rather than competitive. Right. And in it, in a sense, be, being local is to be able to open yourself up to world challenges that impact your local life rather than closing down and burying your head in the sand. That often parochial people do. They, they don't want any come from away. They're happy with the way they are. Um, and, uh, so it's working through those differences as a part of public policy and government using the Roberts Rules of Order to kind of dictate how we carry on debates and conversation and how to make that work, how to finance it. It's extremely difficult, but I'm thinking if it can be done at the local level, it can be extrapolated to a more global level. Yeah. And then I discovered the globalism is not going to work. The, the whole global citizenship is not going to work until people find some level of contentment on how to live very close to the earth locally. Absolutely. And that's, that's the responsibility uh, of all of us who have, you know, those sentiments in mind is to, you know, shape the local area in right. such a way that it can inspire others elsewhere to do the same. And hopefully, um, allow them to, you know, flourish in ways that they've never flourished before. Because the role, you know, nowadays, the role of globalization, in quotes, um, is by all means not a positive force. Sometimes it is, um, um, but it's most certainly not in certain areas in economic terms. When, uh, you know, loggers come in or the mining companies come in or oil companies come in or drillers come in, and uh, just displace people off the land and completely disregard their rights. But it brings us back, That's and right. maybe we'll conclude on this, the, the project that you and I have discussed extensively, which relates to all of these things, which is this idea of, of um, climate displacement havens and getting local communities, such as Annapolis County and, and other parts of the world, to um, embrace the idea of being a, a sort of sanctuary for climate displaced persons and at least getting on the agendas, the idea through a, perhaps a proclamation or whatever it may be by the local government that you will at the very least be open to the idea of welcoming people, whether from one's own country or from third countries um, who have been displaced because of climate change. 
Um, and then that's a really graphic way by which all of us can act locally, um, think globally, and also act globally by, by providing um, safety valves and, and safe havens for people who no longer can live where they're used to living because of the consequences of climate change. And just getting that yeah. into the mindset of local governments everywhere and national governments everywhere that, once again, in the era of COVID, if we work together on this issue, an issue which, by the way, is going to affect hundreds of millions of people, um, if we work together to put the right policies in place now in a preemptive manner for once, you know, instead of reactively dealing with it once it hits really hard, um, then we have a chance of actually building something, once again, on the foundations of a, an imperfect system, something far better than it was in the past and far more sustainable and far more uh, in tune with ecological um, boundaries. Yes. One of the, and one of the, the I think, and I, I will end on this as well because I think it's a key point. One of the things that, that we did as a municipality, municipality of the county of Annapolis, mm -hmm. is to, to pass a, a, a vision statement, a mission statement. It's a strategic plan is, I suppose, the more technical term. Right. And, and we, we wanted to be to embrace historical and indigenous rights. But, but, the, but the key piece that, that at least I and a couple others wanted in there is I wanted the language to say that Annapolis County is a compassionate community. Right. Good. And, and, and if you accept the idea that you're going to be compassionate and you keep reminding yourself that, it, it, how could you be compassionate and have people in the world that are struggling and can't even find clean water without being able to open your hearts and minds and, and your communities in your county to people who who um, who need a haven, right, right. And back to what uh, you were saying about local, you know, because here, you know, where I live, it's a it's a surfing area, right. So, you know, the the use of the term local by surfers is a really negative one. It's like you can't surf on mm -hmm. our waves; only the locals can surf on our waves. You know, but a much better yeah. interpretation of the word local, like you said, is of course you can surf on our waves. They're such good waves that we want to share them with you to show you how lucky we are to have them. You know, and it, and that can be extrapolated yeah. across the board. We want to share our area with you to show you how nice it is and to show you what's possible and so that you can also partake in it and that makes it even better you know so it's a much nicer interpretation of what local means and you're you're the head of course we didn't mention this yet of a organization called the center for local prosperity yeah I, we started that about uh, 2015 and it, i started a nonprofit with a uh, 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 a man named Robert Savelli, who's carrying that on as executive director. And um, uh, my interest in it, I wanted to put a nonprofit think tank locally to mm -hmm. flush out all those things that municipalities can't do. They don't have the time to think it through. So we looked at what it means to be local. How do you create a local economy? Our first uh, a conference, uh, we brought in, uh, I think, about 40 panelists. Everything from local currency to local food to storytelling uh, to share stories about things that people had been done in their communities that have worked. Mm -hmm. And it was just sharing those sort of things. And now we're holding a series of climate retreats. Um, I mean, just really a kind of a sequestered retreat with 14, 15 thinkers to work on different things. Because I needed 
a venue to think through things that you can't do around a council table. Right. Um, right. And, and all of that, uh, uh, and, and I promise I will close with this because it, it's important that, uh, you know, the old Trappist monk Thomas Merton mm-hmm. said this thing one time I haven't been able to shake. He remarked, he says, having lost our ability to see life as a whole, to evaluate conduct as a whole, we no longer have any relevant context into which our arbitrary actions are to be fitted. And therefore, all our actions become erratic, arbitrary, and insignificant. And I think that's happening in so many places in the world. And I think Mm. closely knit communities that are compassionate is what Thomas Merton was thinking about as, as being absolutely necessary. And after eight years as being a counsel, counselor, I know it's possible to get that done. Absolutely. Well, those are great closing words. So thank you so much, Gregory, for a very interesting talk. And um, I wish you and all of Annapolis County and all of Nova Scotia all the best in the, in the coming days. Um, Hopefully, as we're past the worst of COVID-19, we all hope and pray that uh, those normal days are coming sooner than we can imagine. And with that, we, um, we close the episode and we urge everyone to tune in next time for the next edition of Jointly Venturing, Let's Talk World Citizenship. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye.